Welcome to the Fit Archer Podcast, my friends, and excited about another great episode. Just got off uh, with my friend Trevin Stolzfus, and you'll be pretty excited to, to hear a little bit of what this guy's going on. This guy has been you know, in the hunting industry for a long, long time. He's got a lot going on. They got a hunting show um, out back outdoors. He's, he's involved with alpha bow hunting. Great videographer. They've won some awards with their videoing in Outback Outdoors. He's got one called The Rock, an Ibex adventure that really will blow you away, the emotion of the hunt. And, and I've actually been on an Ibex hunt myself in the same place, and I know how tough it is, but they captured it all and share it with the audience very, very well. And like I said, they've won awards with it all over the place. So great episode talking about hunting and, and how he grew up, how he got into hunting and all that kind of stuff. Some of the hunts that he's got coming up. We talk about getting kids in the outdoors. If you're an outdoorsman of any kind, outdoorsman, outdoors girl, this is an episode you're really going to like. So thanks for listening to the Fit Archer podcast, episode 20. I can't believe it's already been 20 episodes. If you would, you know, go to, uh, go to Apple Downcast, Apple Podcast, the downloads, and, and give us a review, give us a rating, share this with your friends and family. I want to thank uh, Patrick Wright, my buddy at Numa Productions, for always taking care of my editing. What we did on this episode was we did video it via Zoom, so it will be loaded up on the Fit Archer YouTube if you'd like to watch it on YouTube instead. But Trevin uh, recorded the audio as well. I recorded the audio on the podcast gear as well. We're going to splice those together. He's got um, he's got his own podcast. He mentions in the in the podcast, and I'll put it in the show notes, and you can find that they got some great episodes, great. Great stuff. You can follow along with them as well. And he's going to drop this on there, and I'm going to drop it on the Fit Archer too. So thanks for listening to the Fit Archer podcast. I am your host, J.P. Penscover, and uh, love what we're doing here and love love uh, love doing these podcasts and, and sharing great, great content. All hunting, all fitness, all the time. Tips, tactics, and gear. That's what we do. God bless you all. God bless our country. You are listening to the Fit Archer Podcast. All hunting, all fitness, all the time. One, and we are recording, Trevin. How's it going, buddy? I'm great. How are you, JP? Good. It's it's nice to finally officially meet you. We've done a lot of communicating over text, social media, everything since 2005, if you remember. That's when we first met. And we met, didn't we met, we met through a Bowsite. antelope hunt. Bowsite.com. An yeah, and an antelope hunt in Wyoming. Yep. We, we were, we both, you and your brother, I think, and I had access through Chuck. Yep. I think Chuck was the land manager or the, or the ranch manager. Chuck Brinkerhoff. Yeah, and uh, I was filming for Best of the West at the time. Yep. And we were antelope hunting. And you guys were hunting that. We were. I was hunting that. Not at the same time. But right. Right. Yeah. It was yeah, funny was because cool. uh, what happened on that hunt? I'd never antelope hunted before, and my brother and I knew a, fr- a, a kid from Las Vegas that my brother used to work. My brother lived in Las Vegas for a while, so he met this kid named Brandon Ruckman, and Brandon and his parents used to hunt Wyoming all the time. And they kept telling us, "Man, you guys got to come come hunt Wyoming." They gun hunted it, and they said, "But you'd be able to kill him with a bow." So they ended up telling us to put in for two units and we ended up putting in for both of the units and we drew the unit on Chuck's place, right? but we didn't know we wanted to draw the other unit. So the Ruckman's had said, well, we don't know anybody over there, so we're not even going to go hunt. And it's mostly all private. 
So I called um, Game and Fish, Wyoming Game and Fish, and I just asked for a list of anybody that would allow any public or any private owners that would allow hunting. And they said, well, here's a list of four people. And the funny thing was I called through all four people, and the last one that answered was a guy named Bug. And I said, hi, Bug. I said, "Uh, do you allow antelope hunting? He goes, ah, you got to talk to my wife, Joy. She takes care of it. So she jumps on. Yeah, she jumps on, and she said, uh, well, we're all filled up this year. And I'm like, for bow hunting? She goes, oh, you want to bow hunt these things? And I'm like, yeah. She goes, oh, nobody bow hunts them. You can have the whole week. And I think it was either right after that or right before that, I went to bow site, and I typed in anybody hunt antelope and unit X, you know, whatever unit it was. And I get a message from a guy, T13, says, hey, I drew that same unit, and it was you. And I, I'm like, T13? So we started talking, and I think you were talking to them at the same time that we were. It was really ironic. And uh, you ended up killing yeah, a really good, think, yeah. really good goat on that, that hunt. You know, the funny thing was on that hunt, I think I sat four days, you know, that they had a couple of water holes. And the problem was, it seemed like every time you said, you know, it's it's hot and it's, this is not super conducive to spot and stock bow hunting. It's more, at least for what we were doing. And I was trying to sell video and stuff like that. Uh, It was more conducive to blind hunting. And so I'd set up a blind and then it was, you could just see just far enough to see the other tank. Yeah. And I'll be darned. It was so frustrating because you'd be sitting there and the critters would go there. And I think what I ended up doing, um, the fourth day now, mind you, I'm sitting in a blind. I have no pants on hot because it's hot. I think, I think I had a little thermometer keychain deal that I brought and I put it in the top of the blind, you know, where all the heat rises. And I think it got to 114 and, um, and I'm sitting there and what I did the, the last day was, uh, early, early in the morning, or maybe it was still dark. I went to the other blind and I pounded in a stake and I tied a white garbage bag to it, like a, you know, a shopping, uh, a grocery shopping bag to it, maybe a couple of them, just so that it would rustle in the wind because the wind always blows in Wyoming. And uh, I ended up, <laughs> I think it was like 3.30 in the afternoon, and here comes these cows to water, and there's a buck behind them, an antelope buck coming in. And the cows end up clearing, and I end up, sh- I shot that buck, And I think it was like, he didn't want to commit to the water hole. And I think I ended up shooting him at like 52 yards. Nice. And he, you know, antelope, antelope and, and Southeastern whitetail are the jumpiest stinking critters. Right. You know, you hear about people trying to shoot Alabama does and how they're like, just keyed up. Yeah. Well, he, he whirled. And, um, and he whirled kind of into me. So instead of shooting him behind here, I caught him right here, um, at the shot. And I just remember at the time I was filming, uh, for best of the West, but I was also filming, I was doing a bunch of stuff, uh, out of the double bull blinds when Keith and Brooks and those guys still owned it before they sold it to Primos. Yeah. And so I was getting content for their DVDs. I don't know if you remember when you bought a double bull blind, you got a DVD, yeah. you know, yep. their latest DVD. And, uh, I filmed that hunt 
I mean, it was blood was squirting everywhere and he didn't go very far, you know, that whole thing. And I just remember after that hunt, I sent that, that video, the, the footage to Keith Beam and, and he emailed me back or maybe he even called me because Trevin, he said, I can't use this. So what do you mean you can't use this? He goes, it's too bloody. I'm like, dude, these are the guys that are the kings of lopping heads off turkeys, lopping heads off of turkeys, yeah. and they can't use my footage. Yeah, shooting geese so, on a golf course out of their blinds. Uh, <laughs> nah. So anyway, um, that was it, it, that was kind of fun. It was it was fun, but that was a hot hot day. I just remember I took about three Louis L'Amour books, and I would read a page and then look up. But what are you going to do? I had my lunch with me. You know, I had yeah. everything water, plenty of water. And, but you, you, in a situation like that, because the property wasn't huge. Right. And so we could only hunt, you know, a little area, but it was big, big fields. And you'd look on the other side of the field and you might watch a herd of antelope for four and a half hours. And I mean, I prayed, I think I, I did a lot of things trying to get them to come over to me. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's just a patience thing. And, and, you know, the buck I ended up killing finally, just showed up like you know when the cows came in he came in and you know so anyway yeah we uh, i hunted that place that was 2005 that was my i mean i it was such an amazing hunt my brother showed up the day before we did i was colorado in colorado elk hunting killed my first bull on my own do it yourself on two days before i got to wyoming and then the very first day i shot my first wyoming buck antelope buck right there on the water hole and then we came back, that was 05, I think we came back in 2007, we skipped a year, and I drew a, a buck tag and a, a doe tag, my brother had a buck tag, and we brought a friend of my brother's, he had a buck tag, and we were done on day three, and then I went back in <clears throat> 2012, Chuck was still there, and you know Chuck had gone through some really hard times, his wife had passed, and then his son committed suicide. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I knew his wife had passed, but I didn't. Oh my goodness! His yeah. son committed suicide. His son committed suicide. Oh and, my and, goodness! Yeah, and he found him. And you know how Chuck is—he's world class individual. I mean, we've always stayed in touch with him. So he was really in the in the dumps. Um, he was really really down. And so Bugs and Joyce moved him off that ranch and brought him up to Elk Mountain to their ranch and moved him into a house in town so they could kind of keep an eye on him a little bit. And they brought a new guy in to uh, work the, the, that little ranch there at Rock River or wherever it was. And uh, this guy was a little different. He wasn't like Chuck. He wasn't as helpful as Chuck. And, you know, he kept saying, you see any badgers out there, you make sure you kill those badgers. Because uh, we've been watching, this guy kept saying, because I've been watching the badgers kill all my calves. <laughs> he said the bad, that's what he said. Wow. I, I don't believe it. But so when you drive in on the property on the east side, or whatever, on the right side of the property, I don't know the direction, there's that native hay. And then on right. the, the, the left side is all the alfalfa. And then at this, right. you know, for the listeners, you envision this, this alfalfa, 3,000-acre alfalfa farm surrounded by sage. So these antelope would, in the, in the day, they might move off the alfalfa and sit up on the sage and overlook the alfalfa, or they just lay in the alfalfa, but then they're just always there. And they'd always tell us there's hundreds of them out there. You know, they got to the point where, the Wyoming Game and Fish gave them fireworks guns. They're shooting at the antelope to try to get them off the alfalfa. I mean, they get $7 for every antelope that's killed. They're just, they can't get them off. So it's a great place, right. a great place to hunt. No, I mean, it's just totally private land, wide open. <clears throat> well, there was no water that year, and so it was a spot in stock. 
And that was really difficult. And Chuck had told, so Chuck would kind of bounce back and forth to the ranch. And he said, you got to hunt the buck that's living in the native. He's got the biggest diggers, prongs of any antelope we've ever seen on this farm. And sure enough, we roll out there and boom, there he was. And I got him on my wall. He's sitting right there. I ended up killing him. Well, trying to pattern him, he would run, you know, those big drainage ditches that would run all the, 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 the borderline of the property. So we'd see him in the native and he would, uh, he would leave the native in the morning. He'd be there in the morning when we woke up at dark. You show up. He had 13 does with him, and he was in the native hay. He was the only buck. And then he would run the does off, and they would go up into the sage in the afternoon. So we set a blind. I had a doe tag, too. We set a blind over in the alfalfa on that fence corner, and then I was going to spot and stalk this. We called him Mo. We had a nickname for him, Mo, the big, the big digger one. And so first morning, I seen... Uh, where he crossed. So we just, we were there before the season started. So we were kind of scouting. So I kept seeing where he was crossing. They had these little scoots. And that that, that was a, that was a September 1st start date, right? For that area. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we got there a little bit early and was just watching them. And then, so I set up right at one of these crossings across this big eight foot, you know, drains just that they flood it and flood the fields. And here comes one doe, two doe, three doe. And I'm like, I'm going to kill this thing on day one. This is going to be incredible. And Chuck told us that this buck never would go over into the, the, alfalfa he only lived in the native in the sage so here comes doe 13 i'm like any minute this buck's gonna come by they're going by at like 35 yards i'm like this is gonna be a slam dunk and i'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and here he pops out in the sage 150 yards away and i'm like what in the world happened he just took a different crossing so that day we went over and we sat in the blind so we waited and he went up in this in the, the sage and there's no more deer on the native so we walked over and got in the blind, you know, it was a little cow decoy we used to get out into the blind, sit down, got in the blind and sat there. And it was probably about two o'clock in the afternoon. And my brother said, Hey, he's looking back up above the farm, back where all the old vehicles were. And he's like, right. here comes Mo following his does coming over to the alfalfa. And Chuck said he never comes. He came out to 50 yards right in front of my blind. And I shot a foot over his back. I'm like, I mean, I just drew back got down on my knees and there was, we're in a, a kind of a corner of a fence and I draw back like this. I'm like, I was so stinking nervous for some reason. I, I mean, I get nervous when I, you know, whenever I'm going to shoot an animal, I get my adrenaline's going and I shoot and I'm like, and he just stands there. And then he kind of trots off. My brother looked at me and he goes, what did you do? And I'm like, I shot like a foot and a half over his back. He's like, what in the world? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I just blew it. I, unbelievable. I blew it. Well, we hunted him again day two, same thing. I couldn't find where he crossed. Day three, couldn't find where he crossed. Day four, I couldn't catch up with him. He would just, he never came back under the alfalfa again. I ended up shooting a, a doe. I got the, oh, if you can see it, there's the, there's the doe right there. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a doe I shot. She had big, good little antlers on her, so I mounted her. I did mm-hmm. a little European mount on her. Well, finally, we figured out, I, I, was, I was hunting every single crossing where Mo was crossing this drainage. And sometimes I sat one spot and his does would cross again. And he, it was almost like he knew I was there. So the one day I figured I found a spot way down on the end of the property. And I'm like, this has got to be where he's crossing. Cause he keeps coming out farther down from where I think he is. And I just kept, you know, right. playing it, playing it, playing it. And he ended up, what we found out he would do is if someone drove down the driveway and the, those antelope were in the native, they would take off running a hundred miles an hour to get out of the native. Really weird. And so I'm sitting there and here the, the, they're working their way toward me and they're about 700 yards away. And I'm like, they're kind of coming my angle. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I bet I picked the perfect scoot where he's going to cross this little, this drainage. 
And all of a sudden, the rancher driving down the driveway, he's leaving the property. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no, this ain't good. And they, they start trotting a little bit. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, they're going to run right by me. And he's trotting a little bit more, trotting a little bit more. And next thing you know, I think antelope, when they take off running, they, they, they scare themselves. So they look at each other. They were looking at each other. And they were going, they must have been going 70 miles an hour coming right at me. And he crossed that scoot at 70 miles. And I mean, all the does would run. They'd stop. And then they would jump down through it and go. So I'm like, well, right. he's going he's gonna to run right to it and he's going to stop and I'm going to get one shot. So as he's getting about 100 yards away, I draw back and I'm like this, the scoot's 20 yards away and I'm like, waiting, waiting, waiting. That buck never stopped. He hit that scoot like a freight train. And I'm like, whoa, he was gone. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. My heart's going 100 miles an hour. And I turn around and look, and this is funny. Here's what I did. You'll think this is funny, but I didn't want to move. So I had my phone because I was videoing them as they're out in the thing, and I'm looking at them through the screen of my phone. I didn't want to get up and turn around, and he's standing there broadside looking back at the scoot, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I just slowly turned, ranged him, and my, my range finder's going like this. You know, it's bouncing. I'm like yeah, trying to yeah. hold it like my heart's going, and he was at a certain distance. He was at actually 67 yards, and uh, I, I said, okay, that's a long shot, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw back. And if I shoot long, my theory is I draw back if my pin locks on i'll just squeeze it off if i'm like this i'm not going to take the shot and i drew back on that that buck and all of a sudden my pin goes thunk squeeze it off and smoke that thing it was the last day that we were hunting there and i killed him that's awesome yeah it was a really really awesome story because so at at their place i was able to i killed uh two bucks on water and then one in spot and stock and then it went back two years ago with my oldest son um oh really yeah there's a guy named cole there and he's a, he's a really great guy. He's a rancher. He's he's working the ranch. Chuck got remarried and moved away, so he's doing really good. Uh, thank the good. good Lord. And I called Joyce, and she said, "Yeah, I'll get you." And I said, "I only want to bring my son. I don't want to hunt. My buddy's son and and my son want to come, and they're I think they're thirteen, they're fifteen now, so it's two years ago." And she says, "We'll make a spot for you. Don't worry. I remember you. We like you guys." And so I, she put me in touch with Cole, and Cole's calling us as we're on the way. He's like, "Hey." If you guys can get here, like in the next half hour, there's a herd of antelope on the driveway with a pretty good buck on it. You can just come up and shoot it. <laughs> I mean, you know, because they're, they're all over. Um, so my, we went. My son ended up killing his first antelope buck. And then my buddy's son killed his first antelope buck. And then my son had a, um, a doe tag, too. He put in for an extra doe tag. And I, got a, I had, had a 28 nozzler built. And I wanted my son to shoot one. I wanted a long-range shot. Yeah, he's a really good shot. He shoots all we shoot. We're shooting all the time, and he killed his doe at 550 yards. Oh, Boom! Awesome. Dropped it. 13 years old. So, that's and I'm not a big yardage guy. I don't want to say that and make somebody mad. But I mean, he, he had a rock solid rest and killed it dead. So, that's awesome. Yeah, what ben, a great. That's a great hunt for for youth. You know, phenomenal because of that ability to have the number of animals, opportunities. You know, stuff like that. So that's great. I I. Uh, I killed my one and only animal with a muzzleloader on that place. Yeah, that's right. A couple years after because, us. Right. right? M- remember, remember when um, well, I was with the Best of the West and, you know, the whole idea was this um, bringing some archery in to give it a little different flavor, that type of stuff, right? Well, um, they were like, well, why don't you at least shoot a muzzleloader? So I got a muzzleloader and I've never shot a muzzleloader before. And, oh, that's not true. I did actually uh, get a muzzleloader sighted in for Guy Eastman when I was used to work for Eastman's Hunting Journal one time. But, I mean, I didn't have a ton of experience. 
And uh, I went out there. And what we ended up doing is in the alfalfa, we jumped in the little ditches. You know, the, yeah. the they had the those little ditches throughout that alfalfa field. Yep. And there was a herd, and I wanted to get within a hundred yards, and and I had a scope, and I mean the whole nine yards. I mean it was it was a pretty cool deal, and I I remember belly crawling through the weeds in the ditch, and then popping up, and and then trying to get steady. And I remember I shot, and uh, I of course it's all smoke, right? And you, I'm like, well, did I hit him in the? guy that was running camera was behind me and he didn't know because it's all smoke you know and and i did i i shot the antelope buck but as i turned back to the camera i'd scope myself oh I no had this, i had this trickle <laughs> of blood coming down my nose and so War, but, that was a really that was a great ant. that was probably one of the best antelopes taken off that property the one you shot with your muzzleloader wasn't it, or yeah, was it with your boat that was because a pretty good one i remember was it was good, good. yeah you know yeah. that place is such an incredible place it is, you know, for, for youth to take antelope hunting in general in Wyoming is the best place to take youth. If you want to go out of state, cause there's so many antelope. I mean, you could hunt any public place and find antelope. That's for sure. It's, it's, you know, there's more antelope than people. Yeah. And, um, so it, it, a lot of it's private, um, and the, the public does get hunted pretty hard, but like you said, it is a, a, uh, it's an opportunity. There's lots of opportunities. So yeah. it is a good one. I think, uh, you know, I, it's the biggest antelope I killed. I killed in, uh, in Wyoming, but, d- uh, down, uh, more North of Rollins is where I was at. And, um, and, and that was, a, I actually posted a picture on Instagram the other day, uh, day before yesterday, I think of that. I was just kind of going through old photos and you know how you get, nostalgic and, and it's definitely it, number one it's a gorgeous photo there's the contrast of colors and the backdrop yeah it's just gorgeous i saw that and one and that that goat's uh, uh 86 and some change and um and i shot that goat and i mean i 10 ringed him but he was quartering away so i got one lung and that was one of those deals where you're like oh yes that's great and he runs and he runs and he runs. And luckily, as it, uh, this is a, a big place we were at where we could get up on a high spot and I could keep track of him. And it was a couple hours later before I snuck in and put another arrow in him. But uh, I'm just looking yeah, at it right now. I'm looking at it right now. That is, that's yeah. amazing. The biggest cutters. I've killed a, I killed a antelope in Colorado that was 79 and some change. And then that, that, that's my first 80-inch goat. 80 plus that's beautiful one look at that so, bow all decked out got color all over it yeah that's, so that's the aspen assassin that was that yeah. old uh snow camo yeah. uh hoyt had a snow camo blend and then i would put those yellow a- a- accents on it you know yeah. and so it kind of looked like an aspen tree yeah it's beautiful fall, you know it's a great so, looking yeah. bow. well tell everybody you know what we just jumped on and we started talking Tell everybody who you are, man, what you do. You're, you're big in the outdoor. You were big in the outdoor industry when I first met you. I mean, you were, you'd been filming, you know, a lot of filming. Obviously, uh, you're a hunting fool. You hunt all over the place. You got some great tags for this year. Going to be an yeah, exciting year for Trevin. But tell us how you grew up, where you grew up, how you got into hunting, wh- what that looks like. Well, I grew up in uh, southern New Mexico and Las Cruces, New Mexico. And my, my dad didn't hunt, but my grandpa and my uncles all did my cousins. So that's how I got into the hunting industry was through uh, my uncles taking me. And, and I was, um, I was pretty energetic as a child. Let's just say that. 
I was, uh, you know, I was a handful. And so, um, you know, I have to hats off to my grandpa and, and, and my uncles and my cousins and all for putting up with me and taking me out. And, and, uh, but it, I fell in love with that lifestyle and, and, um, I was a small, pretty small kid. Um, and when I mean small, I mean, you think of the smallest kid in your sixth grade class and I was probably smaller than he was. Um, I, I, as a sixth grader, I remember I weighed 62 pounds and I wanted to play football, you know, in the peewee football deal. Yeah. No, actually in sixth grade, that's not true. In seventh grade, I weighed 62 pounds in sixth grade. I weighed, you know, right around 50, but I couldn't play football in sixth grade cause I was too small. You had to weigh 65 pounds. So my seventh grade year, I went out the last year I could go out for that smaller peewee league or whatever they called it. And, uh, I remember at the weigh-ins you had to weigh in cause you couldn't weigh more than 120 pounds, but you, and you couldn't weigh less than 65. And I borrowed one of the lineman's shoes and I remember I drank, <laughs> I think I felt like I drank a gallon of water and I put rocks in the, you know, he, he wore, had big old feet. Right. And so I put rocks in his shoes and then put my feet in and I came in on the scale at 64 and a half pounds and they let me play. Uh, but after that season, I realized, okay, scrapper, I'm, you were a yeah. scrapper, weren't you? But wrestling was my, was my yeah. sport. Yeah. And, and, um, I never cut weight. Um, I, I, you know, my, I, I started out where I couldn't cut weight cause there wasn't another smaller weight class. And, um, so I did my, my dad wrestled, my uncle wrestled at Iowa state, my dad wrestled at university of New Mexico and, and, um, so I came from a wrestling background. My dad was a referee, a high school referee. So I spent, I grew up going to tournaments and duels and stuff like that. And I rolling on the mat. But first time I ever did competitive was in junior high, you know, and then I started wrestling. And then from then on, I kind I kind of, I played soccer and stuff like that. But over time, wrestling was my sport and I committed a lot to it. And I wrestled freestyle and Greco and, you know, any way I could get on the mat, that was, that was my deal. And, and, uh, and I had a chance in New Mexico later on in life, you know, I grew up, killed my first deer in the Gila, you know, the legendary Gila area. Yeah. What, where did you uh, grow up in New Mexico? Where was it again? Las Cruces. Las Cruces. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so, but I got a chance to do some guiding and stuff growing up. And, and then after I finished my wrestling career, I, uh, uh, I actually started riding bulls. And um, because I had had a lot of friends that were uh, in the rodeo scene you know uh, uh, las cruces is a pretty agricultural base town and my grandpa was a farmer and you know so i had a lot of friends that rodeoed but again wrestling being my primary sport i was pretty concentrated on that and um but when i was done wrestling i said i want to try this you know and just like anybody else you, you get on some steers and you know stuff like that but what wrestling had taught me was i had i was a leg rider so i had really good for those of you wrestlers uh, that understand what I'm talking about. If you don't, a leg rider is is a guy that when he gets on top, he he slips a leg in, and it's a control position where you can turn and get back points and and even pin guys. But it's really uh, a guy that you have to have good hips. You have to be a good scrambler. You have to understand. If you if you watch MMA, you'll see a lot of guys that'll when they take the back, they'll they'll slip the hook the hook way they call them the hooks in. And there's my beautiful daughter right there i seen you know what right earlier there. i seen something moving around i'm like is that a your elbow wave, i'm like no wave. that's hi how are yeah, you that, that's my daughter she's uh she's hanging out with me at the office today there you um, go 
So um, what I did was uh, I transferred some of that, what I learned and that balance and that stuff like that to, to bull riding. And, and, and uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. I, when I first started, I, I think I just went by on grit and try and determination and then rode the first bull I ever got on kind of hanging off the side and, but I just wouldn't quit. And then I didn't ride 30 other head, you know, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So I ended up going to a bull riding school. And it, so I did that for a couple of years and actually, you know, four or five years and, and uh, got to a pretty high level and, and, and actually moved to Texas and was living with uh, some buddies that were a lot better bull riders than I was. But you really had the perfect build to be a bull rider though. Yeah. I mean, not I, giant, I was, but small wrestler, yeah. strong, right? Yeah, especially yeah. leg rider. And, and so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, 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 so I enjoyed it. And then I got, I, when I hit that 25 year old age, you know, they always say that your frontal vortex, no cortex, your frontal lobe isn't developed till you're 25. And I'm in, I can tell you almost to the, to that, that time I was starting to think, okay, maybe this isn't the lifestyle I want for me. You know, I was starting to think about the future and about having a family and stuff like that. And I ended up moving back to Las Cruces and became a police officer there and did that for a couple of years and, um, and then ended up going into sales, um, for a company called uh, Hunter engineering, which I still work with today, um, over 20 years now. And they, uh, they produce, uh, uh balancers, tire changers, brake lays, alignment systems, things like that. And I'm the factory rep and it's a great company because they make just the best stuff out there. And, uh, you know, if you've had an alignment done recently, you probably had it done on a Hunter and uh, um, so anyway, but it, it, it also gives me the free time to chase my dream, which started out when I moved to Colorado. I started riding and that's when I got into the industry. And then from there, you and I met after I'd left uh, Eastman's Hunting Journal. I uh, worked for them for a while and then I went independent. But at the, in the time, I'd fallen in love really with, with photography and videography and that's when in 2008, I started out back outdoors and, uh, yeah, so we're going into our 12th season. Hard so, to believe. yeah. So tell me what Outback Outdoors is. Tell everybody what it is and, and what, well, it, it, how to find out, it and all that stuff. What it is now and what it started out to be, I hope is, is pretty synonymous. Still, we started out wanting to tell our adventures, share our adventures. We didn't, you know, there's tons of people out there that are better bow shots than me, that better hunters than me, better callers than me, better, you know, but I will say one thing, I'm a storyteller. And, you know, you, when you're in business, as you know, JP, your best bet is you find people and utilize their strengths. Don't try and make them into something that's not their strength. Find people where they, they have strengths that you need. And, um, and then, and, and, if they love that, if they, if they're into that strength, which usually they are because they're good at it. Um, and then you encourage them and they flourish and, and they go from, uh, you know, just a mundane to getting up excited about working. I always wanted that. Um, well, we wanted to produce adventures. We wanted to show adventures and we didn't know a lot. We still don't know a lot, but I, we wanted to be able to capture our adventures and share them. And, um, so me and some buddies, Adam Wells, Dave Bronio, uh, some, some of some guys, uh, actually at the beginning, uh, Jim Brennan and Ryan Litwin actually were the, uh, along with Adam Wells 
were the individuals, the first four that we kind of came together and said, let's do this. And we partnered up and we ran camera for each other. We didn't have designated cameraman. We just kind of, but as we grew, you know, life happens and people go different ways and stuff like that. And it ended up being kind of after a couple of years, um, Ryan Litwin, which who was a, 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 a rodeo clown, Oh. Uh, real estate, some different stuff. You know, they, uh, uh, he, um, anyway, it ended up being Adam DeBronio and myself for, for many years. And, um, and our whole goal was just to be able to share our adventures. But as time went on, we, I really wanted to go more to the cinematic and I wanted to be able to share an adventure, but I wanted the focal point to be the country and the animals and the adventure itself versus, Hey, look at me, look at me. You know, I didn't want to do that. And so as the DSLRs came around and you got more into a cinematic type of style of, of videography, I really worked on understanding that and becoming better at that. And, and I, I think we've come a long way. I think we've uh, learned a lot and uh, you know, I, our success is directly relevant to the people that are involved. You know, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it by myself. I'm, I'm, I'm a good storyteller, but I'm not the best cameraman. I'm, I'm not the best editor. I'm not the best, you know, all of these different things. And so other people step into those roles and you have a partnership and a team, so to speak. And that's what makes it fun. Right. Right. You know? Well, you guys have I done would, well. You, you won, you won some awards. You won awards on your, on your, uh, Ibex hunt, didn't you on that video? We, we, uh, the, the first Ibex film I actually sent out, uh, on, I didn't realize this at the time, but there's these independent film festivals all over the country, heck all over the world. Uh, we won an award in, uh, actually we won three awards for the first Ibex film, which was the rock and Ibex adventure. And then the, then, which is where I went to the Florida mountains in Southern New Mexico. And we filmed that hunt and I never even fired a shot. It was such a, such a difficult, hard to film uh, bow hunt. And then I drew it again. In, that was in 2014. I drew it again in 2016 and we went back and I did kill a, a little Billy the last day. And we made another film out of that. And that film won uh, believe it or not, it won the best bow hunting film in a huge European bow hunting tour. Wow! A guy, a guy, uh, Errol got a hold of me from I think France. Errol got a hold of me and he said, "Hey, you know, I I saw the first one. I know you're coming out with the second one. Can we enter it in this film festival?" And I said, "Yeah." We ended up winning best film, and uh, and then we've won some other awards. We won a uh, the Yeti uh, best film of the Badlands Backpack uh, um, film festival that's usually at the ATA show every year in, I, that was 2019, uh, a film called Adoption, which is a story about my dad and um, and me, because I, uh, my biological father left, I can't, you know, I didn't remember him. He left before I was so young. I didn't remember him. And then my mom remarried and, and my dad is, is my dad. He's not my biological father, but he's my dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yep. I told, I, I always wanted to tell that story. Well, again, as I said earlier, my dad didn't hunt, but as I started filming, he wanted to film me and he got in the, uh, in the excited mode of learning cameras. And so 
he just, instead of hunting with a bow or a rifle, he started hunting with a camera and he would go with me on my whitetail hunts and some stuff like that. And, and so I, I was for, for three, four years, I was wanting to tell that story and I didn't know how, um, but we use the backdrop of, of hunting, telling that story. I, mean, I, I could use the backdrop of wrestling, but I didn't have the footage. Right. And so we told that story and, and that was, it was a pretty successful film. And um, so, yeah, uh, that's, that's kind of us in a nutshell. Um, you know, the whole thing is, and I hope people get this idea is we want to capture imaginations. That's, that's Outback Outdoors. whole goal is to capture the imagination. I mean, whether it be the photography that the guys do or, or uh, uh, videos or whatever, um, if I can hand you or show you a Instagram post or a, uh, in a the example of an episode, you know, that's on Sportsman's channel about back outdoors or a film that we've done and you can see it, but you're not cold, you're not wet and you're not tired, but you still capture or feel that uh, adrenaline, that excitement that we have, then we've done our job. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I watched both of the rock um, on your Ibex hunt. Cause I also Ibex hunted. So it's pretty remarkable. Cause you, you put, you put that hunt in reality where I could sit on my couch and watch it and relive the suckiness of that hunt. <laughs> Cause it's not an yeah. easy hunt. It is a very, one of the toughest things I've ever done. And I didn't go near as long as you did, but tell everybody where they can find these, because I think it's, I, I want people to I want people to watch it. I mean, it was, you know what you guys did, you did really well. And you you said something, Trevin, that I think is really good. If you're a young listener and you listen to this and you're a good storyteller, get into sales. I mean, my my grandpa always told me, and my grandpa was an incredible man. I'd start crying if I, if I told all the stories about him, but he'd always tell me that growing up, you know, we'd go hunting every weekend and then we'd always go to my grandparents for lunch. They'd always cook us, you know, something. So we'd go squirrel hunting. We'd come back with five squirrels and my grandpa would be like, JP, Tell me a story of that squirrel. And I mean, hour later, is still telling a story on killing one squirrel. My grandpa would always right. tell me, he goes, right. JP, I don't know what you're going to do when you get older, but maybe you got to sell cars. You just got to do something in sales because I love right. telling stories. And so right. you are a great storyteller and you're a great storyteller through the camera um, with emotion. I think, uh, you know, it's like music. Like you guys are like making music. You know, you listen to a really, really good song and it kind of takes you back somewhere. And it gives you these weird feelings that you like, oh man, I just think of high school again. If I could do it over again, you know, like a song can do that for you. Right. Your videos right. do, you're, you're, you guys do that really well. Well, and I think that music we choose to back, I mean, you have to understand there's a lot of different ways to evoke an emotion. You have um, all the senses. Well, with video, we don't have the sense of smell. <laughs> you know, the hearing can be difficult when you're, when you're dealing with being in the real world out, out and about and if you get cruddy windy days you know it makes your audio cruddy but we have video we do have audio and then you have music and so i even use music in a my storytelling because uh, and that's why we use i don't know if you're familiar with shane smith and the saints out of austin texas it's a kind of a texas red dirt type of band we use a lot of their music because they are a storytelling band if you will shane smith is a phenomenally gifted vocalist 
you know, a uh, musician, the whole band is, I've seen them in concert a couple of times. There's, they're one of those bands that's as good in concert or better than they are on their album. And, um, but they tell a story. And when I hear music, I envision my mind, the way my mind works is I envision what imagery would match that. So I'm a little bit different. You know, when I'm um, listening to um, a song, let's say they come out with a new album, I'm envisioning where this song would fit into a storytelling mode or a, or a, a part of a story. And uh, so you have all of those things, but I think the key is how do you match them in a way that's seamless? So if I put a heavy rock and roll because I like this song, let's say, and I put this heavy, you know, guitar, hard guitar, deep thumping bass or whatever behind a scene and it takes you out of that moment, I've, I've done you a disservice rather than being able to bring in a song that sucks you closer to the, to the story. That's, that's the key. I think that's the, the, that tight, tight rope walk that as a storyteller that you, that you do sitting around a campfire, the inflection of your voice, the way you retell a story, you know, you could either bore somebody or you could have them on the edge of their seat with the same story. So understanding that and reading your audience in a live setting is very different than trying to tell a story for an audience of, you know, millions and millions of people that watch our show. And that was hard because I didn't have the immediate feedback as I'm building this story. But what I found was if I build the story and, and we here in the office, the guys working on it are captivated, brought back to that moment. Usually we're pretty close to, ca- you know, to capturing that adventure. So, so. music is magical. Um, I I really think so. And you you guys, you do a very, very good job with it. So it made me think right when you said that, like if Shane Smith and the saints, I wrote it down because I want to go listen to it. I love music. Um, the movie legends of the fall. Oh yes. They used music so good. And you know, they're in an outdoor setting and I believe it was Montana. They filmed most Mm -hmm. of that. What's on your shirt. And that's what you guys do so well. So (laughs) it made me think, you know, cause I am in sales. Um, so next, you know, maybe I got to zoom at 11 o'clock. I got a, I got a sales presentation. Maybe I'll just, as I get into my sales pitch, I'll just have a little music on my phone and I'll just play it in the back. Imagine, imagine a salesman yeah. walking in for a sales presentation and say, hold on a minute. And you're just playing their own little music, like to captivate so, you. <laughs> two songs from Shane Smith and the Saints. I want you to listen to Geronimo. Okay. And The Mountain. The Mountain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those two songs, listen to those, and they have a plethora of good music. But those two songs, if you listen to those and you don't think this that this band is kick, you know, kick butt, yeah. then uh, then you're not living. Um, well, I'll listen to but, it right away. I love man, I love music. I, when we mm-hmm. get off, I'm gonna I'm gonna play these guys up and, and, and check them yeah. out. They probably you need to you need to contact them and get some shirts maybe wearing shirts. Well, I have, I've, I, I do. And, and I, we've been wanting to take them hunting and it's just, their schedule never worked. And then we they were actually coming in concert, uh, like third of January and some, they, their bus burned. I mean, oh. literally everything in their bus, it burned to the ground. 
And um, after that, and that was in December, I think, or, or right around that time. And so they were kind of scrambling just to do their dates. They were using, I think they were renting guitars and I mean, they were, so anyway, yeah, it's one of those things. And now I just heard poor guys. Um, one of the, one of the band members has COVID. So they're, everything's on lockdown, you know, all the dates that they had they're they're, they're getting through this 14 day quarantine and the guys feeling good. I mean, it's not like from what I followed on their Instagram, I think everything's okay, but they have to, you know, everybody, and then everybody else has to get tested, you know, and all that stuff. So they've been dealt a, uh, a pretty couple of tough, tough road, but these guys are just amazing. And, and I saw something and this is what really captivates me about a man's character is I saw a deal on Instagram the other day and um, through this hard time, you know, you could sit and you could whine and you could cry. And then there Shane Smith is, and he's writing music. Like he's, he's not in this downtime. He's not sitting there whining and complaining about what, you know, what cards he's been dealt. He's turning around and taking this moment or whatever, and these ideas and, and getting creative with it. And I, um, I'm a huge, I'm a huge goal setter and I'm a huge proponent of, of, Sometimes you just got to suck it up. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, you were a wrestler. You, you, you were a wrestler. Uh, you understand and, and, it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you too, I mean, you coming from such a fitness um, aspect, you know, I, I have two ACLs on my left knee and I still play uh, on two different soccer teams um, over 40, over 40. My daughter calls them grandpa's United. Um, <laughs> hey, but, still doing it though. Hey, but we're still playing and you know, it's, it's, it's so much fun. You just can't lay down and, and, and quit. And, and I've got so much stuff going on. You have to be organized, but it's anyway, I, I, I digress there, but uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and, uh, so yeah, music can really set a tone. I think good videography, I think understanding, um, the basics of videography, rule of thirds, understanding cameras, understanding how cameras work. If you understand how a camera works, photography, videography in a manual setting, you can basically pick up any camera and run it. Now it might take you a few f- times to figure out, okay, what, do, you know, where's this, where's the ISO on a video, video camera, uh, versus, you know, uh, something else, um, or, a, uh, uh, you know, like these DSLRs, you know, you're adjusting your ISO, you're adjust, adjusting your, your F-stop, your, you know, your shutter speeds, all of these different things for the conditions. Um, and and then what that gets with the lenses that we run, that gives us a, uh, on, at times a shallower depth of field, which also gives you more of a cinematic look. Um, there's all these things that compound, uh, compound, as I say that right, they build on themselves, let's say that. And uh, so it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I, you know, at one time I'm like, man, I'm going to, I want to do this to where all I do is this. But the reason I haven't quit my day job is because this industry is so fickle. And what I mean by that is it's a great industry. The people are awesome, but it's a small industry. It's very small. People don't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been to ATA? I've never gone to it. No. Okay. Well, if you go into ATA, um, it, you got shot, which is your shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show in Vegas every year, and uh, or it has been um, quite a bit lately. I, I actually have gone to shot in Orlando. That's how old I am. It's, it hasn't been there in a while. But you got shot. You got ATA, which is the Archie Trade Association. You walk into the ATA show, and you would think it's a net. It would be 
immense, you know, pretty much a lot, most, you know, 90% of the players in the archery community are there and it's not very big. Yeah. It's not very big. So, you know, this, we're in a very sensitive time with hunting too, with what's happening in the media with guns and hunting. And that spills over into bow hunting. Even though we're not shooting a firearm, it spills over that hunting aspect. And then on top of that, we are in the hunting world. More people are dying of natural causes than we're recruiting. So trips like you and your buddy's son and your son going out to antelope hunt in Wyoming, that is huge. You know, my daughter being able to kill her first buck in Wyoming uh, two years ago, being able for her to talk about understanding where she knows uh, she understands where meat comes from. Um, you know, some people think you meat comes from the super uh, King supers or the, the grocery store, whatever, yeah, yeah. you know, grocery store you have in your area. No, it doesn't come cellophane prepacked. Something died. Something had to be butchered. Something had to be processed. Well, we probably 90, 95% wild game mainly is our protein. And my daughter knows exactly where that comes from. And she's been involved in that process and she can speak intelligently to other people that are 14, 15 years old and that are being um, influenced by today's pop culture, which let's be honest, there is a, I don't want to call it a fad, but there's definitely an anti-hunting thread, anti-gun thread that runs through our pop culture. Um, it, it, it's it's funny how when COVID hit, all of these anti-gun people were lining up at gun stores. They're to trying guns. to get guns. Yeah, but you know that's a that's a totally different story. <laughs> we could be on with, that one for a long time. Yeah, but with Avery, it's the ability for her to understand that, and she hunts because she wants to spend time with me. Um, she, I don't know that Avery's main goal is, is she gets up there every day. Matter of fact, I know it's not is to get up and, and get ready for, somehow for hunting season, but she enjoys it because we get to spend time together and um, she understands the process. And, you know, if you've ever seen a factory farm uh, you know, it's, you look at the, the life those animals lead and I would much rather be able to take something that's free and wild and, and, uh, you know, it doesn't have the hormones, doesn't have all the steroids, all of that stuff, you know, shoved into it. And, and uh, you know, it's been able to pass on its genetics. And, and we play a part as a conservation aspect of hunting. You know, the uh, fishing game of the states we hunt in, they rely on hunters to help manage population levels. It's important, you know, to understand that there is a box and that box is an ecosystem. And animals, when they get to a certain number, they're pushing the borders of that ecosystem. And in order to be healthy and sustainable, we need to keep them at a certain level. So that's where hunters come in. Yeah. I think if animal rights activists understood that, what you just talked about, how as a hunter, you are the number one conservationist on the planet. Like everything we do from the money raised to the taking of hopefully mostly the older, most age class animal and what it does to help the animals thrive. They would understand that hunters like you and I, and the, the hundreds of thousands of hunters that are out there truly love animals. Like I truly love animals. 
I love yeah. to hunt animals. I love to eat animals, but I love to watch animals. I mean, we live on a golf yeah. course now, and we have geese walking up and down here. You see, there's there's one of those Instagrams, Nature is Metal. Um, yes. And, you know, it shows that, and it shows the reality of how how nature is harsh and brutal. And as an outdoorsman, I don't like to see other animals eat other animals. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I kind of got a softer heart. I have no problem harvesting an animal I'm going to shoot and eat, but I don't like to see other animals getting killed and gored right. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, if they just really understood, we're not some bloodthirsty, ravaged, barbarian caveman that wants to just go out and annihilate every animal in the population and beat our chests. You know, they see it, they see somebody who shoots an animal and they pose with it and they think, well, it's bragging and it's posing and it's so egotistical. No, it's the whole process of everything you just explained getting up every morning and getting my workout in at 6 a.m., eating good, doing another workout in the evening, a heavy backpack hike every single day because when I go out hunting and shooting my bow every single day, so when I go out hunting, I can enjoy every process of that, make a clean, quick, ethical kill, take it apart in the field, bring it home, feed my family with it, get healthier because of it, and try to pass that on. And I think That's correct. a couple different things that come to mind when you say that, Trevin, is Social media is our kids are growing up in a social media world. And I love social media. I mean, it's important. Social media is not going away. I don't think, you know, it's anything's no. possible in our society today. Now, I, no, nothing is, is past what I believe anymore, but um, they grow up in it. And I, on, I said this to my friend the other day. I believe social media is the devil's playground. I really do, because it's dividing our country in a bad way. You got some somebody just a keyboard warrior sitting there just attacking every post that they don't believe in, and then these people attack back, and then other people chime in, they attack back. Instead of being a an overwhelming place of positivity and 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 good, and I think you do a great job doing that, and I think if we can teach our kids that, hey, enjoy social media. It's a way to connect. It's a way to you and I have been connected through it from day one. I've never met you in person. Never had an opportunity to shake your hand. One day we will. We've hunted two yeah. different properties, by the way, Chuck's place and Dennis Perkins's place at the same time, almost same time, and we've never been able to actually meet. We'll tell that story. In, I'll tell the story in a minute. But oh um, yeah, I forgot about that, Missouri. Yeah. So we can be and teach our children to be a positive force on social media. And of course, I have political, and I posted one political, but it was a funny one this morning. You'll see it on my Facebook. So five years ago. Um, it just popped up my time hot. We had, my kids were fighting. My, I have a 15 year old boy, 13 year old girl and 11 year old boy. Well, five years ago, they were, you know, five years younger. And my, my daughter's in the middle and my youngest son, they go at it all the time. And so we made this get along shirt. We wrote get along on it. And then, uh, a John 12, 15, 12, or whatever it was a, a scripture verse and it says, love each other. And we made them, we put them both in the shirt and put it over them. So they both had to wear it and they hated it. And I, and I just posted, I'm like, wouldn't it be great? You know, I've, I'm thinking of mass making these shirts and sending them out all over our country because people just need to get along. And I'm like, wouldn't it be great to put Trump and Pelosi in that same shirt? And so I went to Photoshop. <laughs> I Photoshopped Trump's head on one, my son, and Pelosi's head on my daughter, and I posted it side by side. But I don't get political on it because I, I'm never going to win somebody's vote for the way that I want to vote just by trashing the way that they believe. I mean, what makes America great is... We all get to believe what we want to believe. You know, that does make but, America yeah. great, but it also can be damaging, and, and social media is a, a damaging aspect of that. And the last thing I want to say, because it's all kind of things that you've said, was hunting is a small industry. People don't realize that. 
and they keep saying these statistics that we're losing more and more hunters every year. But what I'm, I'm not, I'm not seeing it. I know it's statistically it's true, but I think it's what we're, where we're losing it is like what you said, the, the generation after us and the generation after them are not getting into it the way that we did. We're losing right. them to something. Are we losing them to technology? Are we losing them to social media and just not the, the work ethic? I'm not sure, but our age group, the, the fitness bow hunter, the fitness hunter today, there's more of them in Arizona than there's ever been because they're all in the spots I used to go seven years ago that they were never there. Now I'm like, I yeah. thought we're losing hunters. But what we are losing is that next group coming up. So things that you're doing, I, I watch you on your Instagram, and you're, al- you're always taking kids taking him to Kentucky, taking him to Nebraska. Ray Howell, you know, he's been on multiple times on the, on the Fit Archer podcast, what he's doing with Kicking Bear and introducing kids right. to the outdoors. We need more of that if we want no, our I, sport to continue. Yeah, I agree. And one of the – jumping back to social media, I, I was sharing this the other day that, that, you know, when people post stuff on social media, it is their – it is the cream of the crop. It is the, them at their best, if you will. And what we've done in a way is we've done a couple of things. One being that we've put this false sense of reality for us to compare ourselves to. Okay. So when somebody posts and their feed is completely them at the gym and I'm struggling with getting to the gym, how does that make me feel? Right. right. Well, hopefully it's more motivational, but and we but we also live in a society where that has become the standard for beauty. It's become the standard for our self-worth likes. You know, it's that dopamine dump that comes from we look at our phone. How many likes did I get? How many thumbs up did I get? How many comments did I receive on this post? And it's tied to our self-worth. And that has nothing to do with our self-worth. You know, we are created in the image of a creator that is far greater and far beyond that. Yet we are comparing ourselves to this image that is filtered, an image that is monitored, that is only shot at this selfie angle that's just right. And it's false. And then the other problem I think we've done that comes from social media. And again, I use social media and I think it can be a great tool, but it's a shortcut. Okay. I could come on social media and I could play myself off as somebody that I'm not. So I have the ability to be whoever I want to be through, through images and video. But in reality, um, that's not who I am. So I, I, I think we do that in real life anyway, but it's a much smaller scale. I mean, let's be honest. Why do you look at what you wear? Why do you comb your hair? Why, I mean, because you want to look presentable. You want to put your best foot forward. You know, the old saying, you know, you go to, you only have one chance to make a first impression. We want to make that great first impression. But with social media, there's so many ways we can dupe the system. Right. And um, I mean, I could put on there that I'm in the gym every day. I don't go to the gym. I mean, I, I do other things, but I'm not a gym rat. Mm-mm, just I don't have time. It's not a high enough priority for me. Um, I do other things. OK, um, but that's not me. And, and so one of the things I have to be very careful of is when I'm posting things that I'm posting honesty. 
um, and that it's positive. So uh, I think those are the two main da- uh, pitfalls of social media. But on the flip side, you also it's also a great way to connect. Um, it can be. And um, I, I think every, every, everything good has uh, too much of a good thing can be bad, right? So there's everything within moderation. But uh, I'm excited at, at where the industry is going. I think we need people more like you and Ray Howell and, you know, guys like that, that, that do see that next generation and, 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 you know, race, race touch more people's hearts and minds than, than I will ever. And I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm excited to call him one of my mentors. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, speaking of Ray, it's, I mean, you know, I've, I, I kind of met you and met Ray and then you guys knew each other and then Dennis Howell and, and, uh, I mean, Dennis Perkins and, and, uh, uh, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, yeah. So yeah, maybe talk about Missouri. Yeah. So I'm, I go, I've been to Missouri a few times. Um, I go there one late season. Ray's like, you know, I, I, I met Ray in 1994. Um, sorry about my dog in the background, but no I met worries. Ray in, in 1994. I told a funny story when he was on the very first podcast that he did with me. Um, so he liked wrestlers at UW lacrosse at the school that we went to. My brother was two years older than I was. My brother's a bad dude. I mean, big muscular, my height, but 220 pounds and just solid muscle. And he was a national champion wrestler, three-time All-American. He's just a he's a police officer now, 18 years, something like that. <clears throat> One of my idols that I look at, I shouldn't say idols, but a guy I really, really look up to, right, my brother. Sure. Well, Ray really enjoyed wrestlers. <clears throat> and so I'm sitting there one day, and my brother said, hey, this guy, Ray Hall, wants you to uh, do a job for him. And Ray owned the steel business back then. So he asked if I could uh, drive some blueprints from La Crosse, Wisconsin, to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which was an hour and a half drive. And I'm like, yeah, I can do it. My buddy, John Severson, I don't know if you know John. He's vice president John. of, He's, of uh, Faradine. John Faradine, yeah. yeah. We grew up since kindergarten together. So we've been uh, best is friends. Is he still with Faradine? Yeah, he's vice president. Yeah. He'd been there oh. long. I mean, he's 20 companies they own now. They got He's got a good yeah, gig going. I know. So yeah. John's girlfriend at the time lived in Eau Claire. And we lived together in college. We roomed together in college. We went to college together. So we, we did everything together. And I said, John, you want to go with? And he goes, yeah, I'll pick up my girlfriend. So we drive there. We borrow one of our roommates' cars, drive there. On the way back, we're driving back, and we pass this school bus. Just like everybody else is passing, well, we get back to the our apartment, and my roommate Brad says, "Where have you been? My parents have been calling. The cops have been calling. You're in big trouble." And I'm like, "For what? Like we weren't doing any. I mean, I was a partier back then, big time partier. But we weren't doing any partying. We did just honest kids going back and forth. Well, the school bus driver claimed that I passed him when he had a stop sign out, and he wasn't going to give me a ticket. He said, but then he said I reached my arm out and I flipped him the bird." And that was not me. I wouldn't do that. I mean, right. had I been under the influence, I was wild. I would have that would I wouldn't have put it past me. But we never touched a drop of anything that day. And I'm like, I didn't do that. So that was how I first met Ray. He paid me twenty dollars, and as a college kid, twenty dollars was like everything. Well, it ended up costing me two hundred and eighty dollars in a fine and a ticket. And that's how I ended up meeting Ray. And but Ray had called me. He's like, man, you got to go hunt Dennis Perkins's place and go late season. It's the best. And so I went, and you know how it is when you go to Dennis's. He was driving a little geo tracker, and he would take you. His Hummer. His Hummer. He calls it his Hummer. (laughs) He calls his Hummer. And this one morning, he said to me, 
he said, hey, I got to take you extra early because I'm picking some guys up. And it was you and a couple other guys. And, and he said your name, I'm picking some guys up. Uh, Trevin, I think you know him. I'm like, Trevin Stoltzfus? That's how I say your last name, right? Stoltzfus? Right, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I know Trevin. I've never even got a chance to meet him. He goes, well, maybe you'll get to meet him. I don't remember why we didn't get to meet, but he dropped me off in the one stand on the, the place that he leased out, you know, through Eagleville or wherever it was on that, on that oh, far yeah. lease. 55 minutes before light. And it was, he said to me, he goes, it's really, really cold out this morning. So if you get cold, just call me. I'll come get you. I don't, I don't expect you to sit long. It's 20 minutes before light. And I am not making any of this up. I'm doing squats, air squats in my tree stand because I'm so cold. I made it maybe 30 minutes after light, you know, after light. And I called Dennis. I'm like, Dennis, I can't take anymore. Well, that night was my last night there. And he took me past his personal property to a little mm-hmm. bitty, chunk and it was the greatest night of my bow hunting whitetail life so i'm sitting on this uh, broken down stand i mean it was the stand I'm i know so exactly pro- what you're talking i know exactly what i know you're because you, i think you killed my buck i think you killed my buck one of you guys did so i remember Adam sitting did. there and, and there was all those turnips and i watched i don't know how many two and a half year old bucks walk by me and i turned around and i look and there's this eight pointer and he had, it looked like baseball bats coming out of his head. And I'm like, oh, he's going to follow. And he's just gobbling these turnips up. Sugar beets, I think they were. Sugar beets. Yep. And he's gobbling. I'm like, he's going to come through at 20 yards. I'm going to kill him. It's going to be so amazing. It, it was the greatest night. I mean, I seen probably 15 bucks that I let go. And that buck starts walking. And at 40 yards, I couldn't turn around and shoot him. I was waiting to come side. At 40 yards, he turns around and walks away and disappears. And I think the next day, then I left. I had to drive back to Wisconsin when I lived there. And Dennis texted me. He goes, that big eight-pointer got killed by Trevin and his group. And you guys killed. He was a – it was just an unbelievable buck. And so – Maybe eight-year-old deer, something like that. I mean, just a just an old deer. Um, Adam killed that buck. Um, yeah, like two days later or something. Yeah. yeah. I went there again. I, and I sat that stand the day after you did, and I saw him – but he never came into range with me. Here's an interesting thing. When I first met Dennis, um, I was hunting another property in the area. And I actually first met Dennis through Ray Hal when we did a kicking bear camp uh, where people came in and hunted turkeys with us. And then anyway, so that's how I met Dennis. Um, and, uh, then I wasn't seeing anything. And so he calls, I call him and I say, Hey, you got any does? I just want to shoot something. He goes, yeah. He says, but I'll come get you. I'll take you out. And he took me to his place, which if you know, Dennis, Dennis Perkins place is like the, I mean, he, he's forgotten more about white than I'll ever know. Yeah. And it's magical. And yeah. So I'm sitting in this tree stand and my job is to shoot does and I'm seeing all of these deer come by. And the cool thing was that, well, I said the cool thing. I, I was new to whitetail hunting. I hadn't white hunted whitetail. I was 33 years old before I ever got in a tree stand. And uh, so I was very new to whitetail hunting. But once I did it, man, I was addicted, man. I just to the chess match. So, we're sitting there and it's getting dark 
and I have not seen any does. And then all of a sudden these two deer come in and, or this one deer comes in and I'm looking and the last thing he told me when he dropped me off is he said, don't shoot any button bucks. And I'm like, yeah, sure. No, no, that's no problem. No problem. Right. What's dark. Okay. And you know how a button buck will have a little brown patch. It might not even have a little bump, but if you look close enough, you can look at the face and after time, now I look and I'm like, I can't believe I mistook this for a stinking doe. (laughs) Shoot this doe, what I think is a doe and it doesn't go far. Right. And then it begins getting dark. It's still, still legal light. Another one comes in and I'm looking and I shoot that one. I got two does, man. I'm stoked. I shot two button bucks. Oh no. (laughs) <laughs> I never heard about that. Oh yeah, Dennis. Dennis, he he's like a steel vault. He won't say anything to anybody. But that's how. And here's the deal. That's a ticket to get yourself booted off that beautiful place exactly. right there. Right. You know, here I am in this mecca, and I'm doing exactly what he asked me not to do. And I just told him, I said, I am so sorry. I felt so bad. I'm like Dennis. I will. I will pay for those. I know those would have been good bucks at some junction. He goes. And he finally just stops and just laughed. He laughed. I mean, belly laughed. You know, he's a big old guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, stout as all get out. And he just laughed and laughed and laughed. And, you know, we've been great friends. Every, I probably talk to him once a month. Yeah, I mean, still, I don't hunt there. Guy. I've got uh, a place in Missouri. But I'll be honest. He's taught me more about wildlife and whitetail management than I've ever learned from anybody else. Um, and I manage – I help to manage a property out in Southern Missouri. And then I, I've got a place in, in Kansas that I help manage. And um, I'm just ate up with whitetail and that whole chess match. So it's, yeah. it's pretty exciting. It's I pretty went there exciting. two years ago. So I've always tried to get on his personal property. I've hunted his property, but I was always hunting the lease, uh, outside, right. which was yeah. phenomenal place. I mean, you which, couldn't. Which, I had an encounter the first year he had it with a buck that was 174 that ducked my string out of a ground blind at 32 yards. And he was probably a 170 inch deer, 175 inch deer at that time called bonfire. We we nicknamed him bonfire because he looked like he had a bonfire coming out of his rack. And my cousin shot him the next year, 204 Uh, on that place. Yeah, they've killed like just off Dennis's personal place. I I think I'm right with this. I think this is what he told me. They've killed 11 bucks with archery. That have 200 right. inches or better. That's, that's unbelievable. Right. I seen the big, the year that you were there, um, that you and I were there at the same time, there was a six pointer that I had two different encounters with that, that would have pushed high one forties, potentially one fifty. when he came in. I mean, he looked like a steer coming through and I'm like, right. Oh gosh, I'm going to kill this thing. And he came through and he had no brow tines. And Dennis yep. was like, you're lucky you didn't shoot him. I almost shot him. I didn't even realize you couldn't shoot. When was that? Well, it was the year you the year okay. it was the year because that the big eight pointer was killed. I I saw that deer, and I I know exactly what you're talking about because he was amazing, and um, we couldn't shoot him at the time because yeah, he was only he was, a six point. Yeah, they have to have four on one side. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was giant. He was a giant. But two years, I think it was two years ago. Um, good friend of mine who's been hunting Dennis's personal place. I could never get on Dennis's personal place. And I introduced right. my friend, Ricky. His name is Ricky Roberson. He's an un- we call him Big Country. He's an unbelievable dude. You'd love him. And he hunts in Texas like crazy. He, he just chums up with Dennis, and him and Dennis become like this. You know, he drives up, and he, he brings the shrimp and everything and the corn, and they do the shrimp boils. And, 
And I'm like, Ricky, how'd you get on Dennis's personal place? I can't get on his place. Every time I call Dennis, I'm like, you got any openings? He's like, I don't have any openings. And he doesn't even have to, I mean, he doesn't advertise anything. It's the same guys nope. going nope. every single year. <laughs> and Ricky calls me. Now, I had had a couple, this is two years ago, I'd hunted all over the place already. And, you know, I have kids and I got to run them to football and everything. And so my wife's like, hey, she lets me hunt and she's beautiful and she's an angel. But there is a limit as well. And I don't ever want to overstep that because I also want to be a responsible husband and a, and a good husband and a good right. dad. Right. And Ricky calls me and he goes, this is on like a Monday. And he goes, dude, he goes, you're the only guy I thought of. He goes, Saturday, I'm leaving to Dennis's place and my buddy just backed out. Can you go? And I'm, I'm driving somewhere with my wife. I'm like, hun here's the deal. If I don't go, I don't get another in. Like this is my in to be in his, his place. So on Wednesday, I booked a flight. I was there Saturday and the big bucks were all locked up. Every big buck was locked up. I, I filmed every, I, I put them all on Instagram and Facebook. I don't know how many bucks I filmed that were at that 135 to 140 inch which for you know for a, a trophy hunter that's nothing for I'm not a trophy hunter, I haven't right. killed that many big whitetails. I killed a 144 inch eight pointer. I killed 150 inch in Missouri at a different place uh, the year before that, and then I killed you know some 130 inches, and these bucks are coming through, and I'm like, oh. I just looking at it going, it's it's got to be bigger. Like that's got to be 150. I'm like, it's not, so I can't shoot it. I passed up probably seven or eight bucks that were all within 20 yards coming through. I could have shot, could have, you know, I'm just going to say I could have killed them. And the last night, Dennis kept saying, he goes, can you extend your stay? Can you stay longer? And I'm like, I I can't, I got to get back. I've already been here six days. And he's like, can you just stay a couple more days? I know if you stay a couple more days, you'll kill buck. That's the kind of guy he is. You know, I I had paid for the days. And he's like, I, you don't have to pay anything else. You're my buddy. Just stay. And when I, when I say pay, you know, I don't want anybody to think like it's, it's a high fence. It's just, he manages, this is wide open. I mean, come gun season, people are lined up along his property trying to kill the bucks. It's wide open land. It's just a lot of acreage and he manages for world-class deer. So it's, he's an, he's an outfitting, you know, he's just got a world-class place. My buddy, Ricky, the, the one night uh, Dennis had said, he goes, Hey, here's a buck. I want called out of here. If you see this buck kill, it's like a, 155 inch 10 pointers just had a weird shape rack well of course ricky i get a text one night just killed that cold buck i'm like you you gotta be kidding me ricky i killed it dead i mean it's just one of the biggest bucks probably i'd ever kill in my life you know he's right. calling and it off the property it's a cold buck to get off that yeah. property but dennis is a world-class guy he had a lot of uh he had a lot of issues with um raccoons and coyotes and bobcats and i told him i said hey my brother is a big time trapper my brother loves to trap. I call him the trapping fool. And my brother went there last year and ended up getting a bobcat, a beautiful bobcat off his property. And they trapped some coon and, and all that kind of stuff. And now he's going to be going there every year for Dennis just to, just to kind of help That's him awesome. out. So, That's yeah. awesome. Um, let's, let's finish up with a couple of things here. You got some fitness type competition things you're doing. Yeah. I, 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 tell, yeah. tell him about that. I, I'm really interested in that. So, um, in the past, I've done something called train to hunt, which I, I don't do anymore. Um, and uh, primarily because of my knees. Um, and that was where CrossFit meets bow hunting. Um, a lot of CrossFit exercise done throughout a course for time. There's some 3d shooting and stuff like that. What I'm doing now is called the alpha bow hunting. 
uh, competition and it's really awesome. You start with a, it's the whole goal of Phil Mendoza's alpha bow hunting is to, and you can check it out on alphabowhunting.com. But the whole goal is to create a base of what is your true, your realistic, uh, effective range. Okay. I can go out in my backyard and shoot at 60 yards with no wind and I, 60 yards is easily my effective range, but it's not my effective range all the time. Understanding under duress, in windy conditions, animal behavior, uneven ground, all of this stuff changes your effective range. You mean real life, you mean real yeah, life bow hunting. <laughs> exactly. And everybody goes and they shoot 60 yards. So that's how far I'll shoot a buck. Well, okay. What if the wind's blowing? What if the buck's alerted? What if, you know, there's all of these factors that end up cutting down your effective range. Well, that's the core. Uh, and he actually does a course on this, which if you get a chance, you can do it online. I would definitely take it. Um, it's a great way to test yourself because I might have an effective range one day of 65 yards in a hunting situation. The next day it might be 35 because of the conditions or whatever. Um, and I think you have to, that has to be determined beforehand. And I tell you this because this competition came out of this whole mindset, this idea of being able to understand our effective range. The alpha bull hunting comes in and you end up, um, testing yourself on 3d course. Now the 3d course is similar to a lot of other 3d courses, except for the scoring is, um, they don't count the five. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to think 12s, 10, no eight, no five. So if you understand a 3d, the lungs are an eight, then you have a circle and then a small dot in the middle, which is a 12. If you hit the body anywhere else, it's usually a five or a zero is a miss. Well, with this, with the alpha bow hunter, a five is a minus three. Okay. So it's almost kind of like the, the Fred bear scoring system, but it's a little bit changed. So you shoot a 3d course first, uh, 20 targets. I think it's, yeah, it's 20 targets. And then that kind of ranks you where you you are in your division. Okay. Men's masters, which is, I'm, I shoot in that it's 40 and over. They have a, a super master 15 older, and then they have an open, which is, you know, 39 and under. Um, and it ranks you. And then you go head to head, the head to head competition. And this is where it gets it really interesting. They have uh, five targets and the last two targets, <clears throat> they're two identical courses side by side. So imagine if you're standing on a shooting line and there's five targets. Okay. The, the, Closest two targets are the identical. They're just, they're mirror courses of each other. You start out the course back to back and you run down to the first target and you take a sled and you drag it out. Now, mind you, you're not running with arrows or a bow. You have a bow caddy, if you will, like a golf caddy. You have a guy with all six of your arrows. Mind you, there's five targets. You have one mulligan you can use, but it takes time. This is a timed course. And on each target, there is a clay pigeon, like a shooting clay pigeon, right? Hanging in the middle of the tin. You run out, you drag a sled out to a predetermined position. You run back, you grab your bow, you knock an arrow, you shoot the first target. That's your closest target. Then from there on, it gets further out, okay? Then you run to the next station, you grab a sandbag that is there. 
like a, a, a brute sandbag or, you know, like a CrossFit sandbag. You grab that, you run to your sled, you drop your sandbag in it, you run back. Now you shoot the next target. Again, what's happened? You have the adrenaline rush of competing one-on-one with someone. All you care about is beating that other person. And then it's a, it's, it's a bracket. You advance forward. If you hit the clay pigeon or the clay target, it's no, no addition to your time. If you hit outside of the clay, but within the eight, it's a 20 second penalty. And then a five is a 40, a five or a miss is a 40 second penalty. Okay. So you can imagine a bad shot. That'd be bad. So the key is how fast do you go that you can shoot accurately? Okay. You only go as fast as you can so that you can shoot accurately because you can't outrun bad shooting because you could be the fastest guy on the course. But if you can't hit clay targets, the other guy could basically walk the course and he'd beat you. Okay. So that's that whole thing. And you just keep going until you have a winner. And it's so much fun because what it's doing, number one, is it's working on finding out what your effective range is out to a certain distance under duress, under adrenaline, under not exhaustion, but at least out of breath. And that's hunting. What's the farthest so, uh, target you shoot at? How far is the farthest one? On the 3D course, it might be 50 yards. On the actual course itself, you I think that the furthest he's ever stretched, it was like 42 yards. And that's when you're under duress, 40, which is a long shot when you're under duress. Yeah, yeah. And he usually has these two big grizzlies facing each other. They're like this, you know, with their arms up. It's just, just So it's an impressive backdrop, you know, and um, of these two targets and you're shooting. You've seen the, the targets that pop up and then go down. Well, it's kind of similar to that in the fact that you have to execute the shot within a certain amount of time, but the, the targets don't go away. Um, I've even had a point to where I've come to full draw and the wind was this day, the wind was blowing terrible and I had to let down. Wow. But that's hunting, yeah. you know, yeah. and you, you know, to, because I knew that if I did, if I shot, I was going to miss, I let down, I let the wind gust died, drew back again, made the shot, you know? Um, but yeah, so, so that's, where, I, I, that's what I do. Where are all these, where do these take place? Well, they normally, th- there are actually a couple of different areas that they do this, but unfortunately, um, COVID kind of put a little damper on that yeah. this year. So all we're doing is nationals, which will be at no limits archery in Denver. In Denver. When July, is that? That is July 17th, 18th and 19th, I think. So can anybody show up for that? Anybody can show up. You, if you, if this is something you want to do, get on a plane and get here. Yeah. This is a great community. You can go online and register. It's a great community. My daughter actually shoots, is going to shoot in Nashville. She's shot in it in the past. So there's a kids, you know, it's, it's a great competition. Yeah. Good people. And the cool thing about this versus like a train to hunt where you're on this big course is you have all these people that are cheering for you. It's all happening right in front of them. Right. Right. So there you have the adrenaline of people screaming, go, 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 you know, and all that stuff. So, yeah, I've been watching you do it. So I did the train to hunt a couple of years ago, uh, down here in Tucson. Yeah. I've always wanted to do it. I've never been able to do it. Cause I was always on a baseball field and finally I'm like, right. I'm skipping a baseball tournament. I'm going to it and right. really enjoyed it. And I've wanted to do this for so long. Um, I work out at a big CrossFit and they built a, it's a 15,000 square foot CrossFit facility. And so I, I kept telling my buddy, I'm like, we need to do an indoor one. Just one we put on, we got a bunch of people that want to shoot and let's do it. And I got a bunch of people that'll shoot. Let's do it indoors in Phoenix when it's really hot and just have a fun little competition. That's where the fit archer came from. 
um, we do something similar called the Fit Archer competition. Just indoors, right. though. It's not outdoors. Right. But right. we do we do CrossFit. Like we do box work, no CrossFit skills type stuff, and and uh, it's it's so much fun. I mean, it, what you what you you notice is the camaraderie is in the hunting community is so great. Like when you say there's people cheering for you, of course you're in comp- competition, you want to win, but you, you're still there to see the next guy succeed. You're still oh, there to sure. see the next girl succeed yeah. and cheer everybody yeah. on. And man, the the more we can uh, mesh our hunting community together, whether it's a, a gun hunter, muzzleloader hunter, bow hunter, youth hunter, crossbow hunter, traditional hunter, whatever it is, to keep our voice positive and strong is is important. It's really, really important to do. Um, yeah. Let's finish with, because uh, I know yeah, you probably got to get... Up. I got I to gotta head out. So You got to work. I get you to work. I'm just going to go tell yeah. some stories today. To, what, what hunts you got coming up? You got a couple quick so hunts. So I drew, I drew Colorado moose. Um, that's pretty exciting. My daughter yeah. drew Wyoming deer. I drew Wyoming deer and Wyoming elk, and I have New Mexico elk. Um, and then the whitetail stuff. So I've I've got a lot of hunts. Um, this year I'm trying to cut back on the amount of time I'm gone because my daughter has <laughs> as you just say, as you just list off like six seven hunts. So uh, there's a lot of hunts like Colorado elk and stuff like that. I might have to just say I'm not going. Yeah. But. It's my daughter sitting over here saying, I'll go for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. She wants to take that moose hunt. Hey, take his moose yeah. hunt. No, she can't have my moose hunt. <laughs> That's going to be, I'm really so excited a, to follow busy, you on that. Busy year. Yeah. I'm really excited to see what you do on moose hunting. Cause I know it's a tough tag to draw. I know you're a great hunter and you're going to find the right moose and, and you'll get it done. And, and you're going to kill, you're, you're going to kill a great moose. There's no question. About I, it. I, I'm excited. I'm excited to, to, for sure to, to, to have that opportunity. And in, in, in Colorado, it's the Holy grail. Yeah. Um, I've, I've killed a mountain goat. I have not drawn sheep, but, but moose is definitely probably, the, I, I don't know if it's the hardest, but it's definitely a harder hunt. So I'm excited. It's going to yeah. be, it's going to be a great adventure and I'm going to, we're going to capture it all and share it with the, with the fans and, and yep. everybody wants to follow along. We'll try and it's where I'm moose hunting. It's really bad cell phone signal. So I probably won't, be that much of an Instagram type of live thing, but we'll take some amazing imagery and then share that later on. Yeah. So, so tell the listeners where they can follow you Outback outdoors, where they can find you on social media, yeah, all that so, kind of stuff. Uh, Outback outdoors on Instagram and Facebook, Trevin Stoltzfus, um, common spelling <laughs> on Instagram <laughs> and Facebook. Um, uh, we've got our podcast, the inspired wild podcast yep. on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, those, those places. Um, so we've got, uh, so you can follow us there. If, if you need to get a hold of me, instant message me, probably is the best. And, and, or you can go on the website, outbackoutdoors.com and, and send me a message. Um, but, uh, we're coming on, uh, this, uh, this next week will be our first, uh, show of the 2020 season for sportsman's channel. Uh, we all, our old shows are getting on Amazon prime. You can go to Amazon prime, search awesome. outback outdoors. And you can watch some of our older stuff, and that's going to continue until we catch up. And and but we're on we start on Sportsman's Channel at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern. Um, that's 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and so it's probably 7 p.m. 7 p.m. My You're time on yep. on Friday, um, uh, starting next week. Very and cool. You can, you can watch out back outdoors. So. Very cool. Well, Trevin, man, it's been great to. Uh... We've only ch- we've never chatted through. I'm, I get to w- look at you here, so it's a, kind of like an introduction. Maybe one day we'll. Yeah. 
we'll officially we'll spend some we'll time in camp meet. together. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah. So we've we've hunted a lot of the same spot, got a lot of the same passions. And thanks for jumping on, man. Thanks for connecting. Well, and- th- yeah, and it's it's great. I'm I'm excited to be able to. Uh, I'll I'll take this podcast, turn around, put it on my channels. You do the same. And, and it's, it's a great way to cross promote. Um, I've known you for a long time, have a lot of, of, uh, respect for what you're doing and, uh, and vice versa, I think so. Yeah, absolutely, it works out man. Well. Absolutely, yeah. a lot of weird, a lot of wild connections that we've we met and uh, end up connecting on a podcast too. Yeah. And and For we sure. will one day we'll we'll share a little bit of uh, campfire one day and and hunts together and no doubt. So Sounds God great. bless you, man. Have a great rest of your day and, and have a good you. fourth it, you, good yes, fourth of July. Yeah. Oh, you too, sir. And it's great talking to you. Yeah, you too, Trevin. Take care, buddy. All right, bye. bye.